Um, we're picking up, I think this is our third, third time discussing soteriology, election specifically. So we'll see. I think we can probably bring some conclusion here to our election notes. And then next week we'll address predestination and see how far we get. Um, but remember, and we've covered the three major views. Well, and I added a fourth on my notes. Just that that Molinism that we'd mentioned before the, the middle knowledge. Hey, Gabe, come on in, man. Want a stack of notes? James, could you hand that back to us? You're going to hide behind the pole. <laughs> you're good. Welcome. We were just starting. You're, you're right on time. So those four major views, foresight election being that God elected based on his foreseeing our faith, corporate election being that Christ is the elect and that our election is in our union with Christ. Um, then on my list, number three, Molinism that middle knowledge that God elected because he has knowledge not only of actuality, meaning what actually happens, but also he has knowledge of potentialities, what could have happened were somebody to choose something different. So then um, Molinism says that he made his election um, dependent on that middle knowledge, and he worked all the details of history such that those um, who believe were the right ones. So there's a lot more to that view, um, but yeah, that's at least a nice summary of it. Then we've got individual pretemporal election that God elects on an individual basis, and this one would be um, along with what some would call unconditional election, not based on anything in the center, including foreseen faith. So those are four of the major views. We talked through the history, and then maybe... You can remind me how far we got through our word studies, but, uh, oh, I put this up since it's been so long since we worked on it. So we did our introduction, and now we're working on the three timing pieces of salvation history. Right now we're talking about prior to the salvific moment in any, in any individual's life. Then we'll talk about what happens at the salvific moment and then following the salvific moment. So we've talked through forbearance, foreknowledge, and now we're on election. So we're on our word studies. I believe we made it through our Hebrew word study of Bahar, right? So we'll come back and talk about that at the end a little bit more. But then I think we got partway through this first Greek term, eklektos. Does that sound about right? Okay. So we won't. We don't have to address every text necessarily, but these first... Three on your new notes, these first three are all related words, eklektos, eklegamai, and eklage. Um, it's just the, the first one's the adjective, eklegamai is the verb, and then eklage is the, the noun, election. So, um, oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, interesting, isn't it? So, but it's, they use adjectives like substantively, just like we might say, um, oh, 
Um, trying to think of an illustration. Well, How would we? Go ahead. That's a Warrenism. Yeah. Same concept. Yeah. So using it substantively, the. Yeah. Well, that's what that's how we use believers. So it's like those who have belief, but then we make it substantival. Yeah, there's lots of ones like that. Or the faithful. There's a good one because that is an adjective. Faithful is an adjective. Faithful ones now is a substantival. Same thing here. The elect ones uses the adjective, and then the noun election refers to the actual process. So I did add that one, the noun eklage. So just FYI. So looking down through that list, we talked about several of the ones in the Olivet Discourse. It mentions the elect several times, um, how if those days were not shortened, um, then all would perish, but they're shortened for the sake of the elect. Um, So then looking down, I'll just jump down to the verb. The verb... Maybe a couple definitions for it. It means essentially to pick out someone or something um, and to make a choice in in accordance with significant preference. So those are interesting definitions. But then um, Luke chapter 6, Christ calls his disciples and chooses from them 12 apostles. So that's just a normal usage of the verb is to choose. Just like we looked at with that Hebrew word, it can be used of making a choice. But then let's go and look. John chapter 6 and John chapter 13 are related texts, and they I think we have an interesting discussion surrounding those two. Because we're thinking about, um, at the very end of your notes, we, I listed out, um, I say the ends of election, in other words, the intended goal. Um, and there's more than just election to salvation. So there's other ways the word is used as well. And this, the question is, is this one of them? So John chapter 6. Um, begin in verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that you are that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? So that word chosen, that's the word eklegamai, meaning to choose or to elect. He says, Have I not chosen you twelve, but one of you is a devil? And who's he speaking of that? The devil. Judas. That's the next verse. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, who was going to betray him, being one of the twelve. So then... A question that rises when we see that is, okay, is this a technical sense of the word chosen? In other words, God elected them for salvation, these 12, and then one of them loses his election or loses his salvation. That's how some would posit it. How would you work through this? Sure. So, looking at how God governs and directs history, 
you would say God chose the other 11 to be his faithful disciples, but then Christ chose Judas as the one who would betray. Okay. Other thoughts on that? That's true. Mm-hmm. Let's go and look at John 13, because I think it helps inform some of this as well. Yeah, John 13, 18. We're in the section, um, Jesus washes their feet here in John 13. And uh, remember, Peter doesn't want him to wash his feet. Jesus says, if, you, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And then pick it up in verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know you what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you who are going to... uh, who are going to bear much fruit, do what I've said, obey me as Lord. He says, because I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, the one who eats bread with me is going to raise up against me. How does that inform our thoughts on John 6? Thoughts? How does John thirteen eighteen inform that that definition of chosen from John six? Well, it was interesting because she was just talking about uh, Judas didn't repent, and this last part of eighteen said that hath lifted up his heel against me, which might imply he could have been chosen to be faithful, but somewhere along the line he lifted up his heel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, is God left it up to free will. He didn't force Judas to betray, just like he didn't force the other 11 to be faithful. Mm -hmm. But God has has foreknowledge, so that ties into that concept also. It does. 
Well, he probably are, also knows like our personalities and our downfalls. Mm -hmm. He does. He knows these things. So it's like maybe he didn't choose Judas to betray, but he knew that Judas would betray. Yeah. Because it's just like in his nature to do that. That's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of goes to that middle knowledge idea that we know God understands future. He understands the future of what we will choose, even in our free will. But then he also understands what decisions we would make given any, any set of circumstances. Yeah. He was also in the, uh, Judas was the treasurer section. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, his heart was drawn away by wealth. Even his actual betrayal of Christ was because of 30 pieces of silver. Yeah. Monetarily motivated. So kind of in this section, it's interesting just to note that choose God, Christ chose 12 um, disciples to be apostles. But then he notes in John 13 that Judas wasn't really chosen because he deserted, essentially. So I don't think it's at all a technical use of election as in elected to salvation. It's rather a general use of he chose disciples, but then Judas betrayed. But it wasn't him losing salvation. It just demonstrated he never really had it. Yep. So then we work down through several more of these. You can look at them more um, if you want. But hmm, several of them. So John fifteen nineteen. I guess since we're there, we're in John 13. Let's just go down there. John 15, it, the word pops up in verse 16 and verse 19. He says in verse 16, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So I think that phrase is interesting. He's chosen them out of the world. Chosen out of the world. Does that mean that the flight also? He's chosen Good question. Yeah, does it apply? Because he's speaking specifically to the 11 at that time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, but that, that's a good question. Does it apply to us? Yeah, probably. By extension. Yep. Oh, man. No, you're good. So then... Let's go down to... I'm just debating where to come. Because some of these I want to pick up later. Well, let's go look at Ephesians 1. Let's go look at Ephesians 1 for just a minute. So this one is one of the premier texts when we think about election. And it gives us part of the purpose of it. Ephesians 1, 
yeah, Ephesians 1.4. And this one's, I like this, because it's, it's this hymn of adoration. And what is the first spiritual blessing Paul brings up as this hymn of adoration? It's election in verse 4. So he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the Beloved. So this great hymn of adoration, one of the premier doctrines that moves Paul to adoration, is election. And that's just interesting because a lot of sometimes people want to avoid this topic because it's a little controversial. And yeah, it is. And we'll actually see another section. Hey guys, come on in. We'll see another section in Paul back in Romans in a little bit. Where Paul says, hey, some of this is past finding out. We're not going to fully understand it. But that doesn't stop Paul from saying this is worthy of our adoration. Yeah. So is God just whimsical and he just at random selects some? Because that's often the charge people want to bring against an unconditional election view is, okay, if God chose with no reason in the person, why were those the ones that were chosen? Why did God choose some for salvation and others he didn't? It's a hard question. Mr. Warren? How about... God and the Holy Spirit, do they, are they exercising free will when they make choices, these choices? So God was sovereign in making an exercise of free will toward, he, he could do it or he didn't have to do it. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, is there any parallels to us in our obedience, exercising free will to choose or not to choose, or is this something distinct from? No, I think, I think you're exactly right if I understand what you're saying. So God makes this decision of election based on his free will. Similarly, as God's image bearers, we have free will to choose whether or not to submit to him or not. Yeah, I think our free will absolutely mirrors God's. Isn't it? Hmm. 
Yeah, it does. Because that's kind of the tension we're trying to understand is, did we choose God because he chose us? Or did God choose us because we chose him? I think the New Living Translation is pretty cool. Uh, it says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I think mean, it still gives that like He's bringing you to him through a decision mm-hmm. of that so that salvific decision of, hey, I'm going to follow Christ. He gave us the option because it pleased him to give us an option, basically. Mm-hmm. And then we get to, to make that choice, but it's still definitely free, free will. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So God incorporates our free will into it, and yet it pleases him. Is that what you said? It pleases him. To give us an option. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a twofold thing, right? Like, it, not only does it please him when we make the choice, obviously, but it's like, man, I, like, he had this figured out. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like, I don't know, I'm the same way. Like, you do something that's awesome, like, this is a great decision. Yeah. Like, it brings you pleasure, right? Yep. It's like, yeah, it was a good, it was a good way to move towards that. And it's like, I think, and then it gives the option of seeing that decisions by others. Mm-hmm. That, that's something that I, God, like, delights in, right? He loves seeing people through choice. Yeah. They made the choice to do it. Yeah. And he Amen. gives a choice to everyone. Yeah. I don't think mm-hmm. it's like, I already decided you don't have this choice. Yeah. Every single person has the choice. Yep. So he chose for everyone to have that option through Jesus. Yep. Yeah, the invitation's universal. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. So then what we're trying to understand, not that we're going to understand it, but what we're trying to understand is how did God make a universal invitation for salvation and yet then he only chose some for salvation. So the invitation's open to everyone, but then only of the elect are saved. It's like, man, the, the purpose of the doctrine really is just to blow our minds to make us go, wow, God is so much bigger than I can even imagine. Yeah. So that's Ephesians 1, and then we've got um, that next word study, eklage, the noun form. This is on the second page still. Um, This one, Acts chapter 9, describes, um, remember when God told Ananias to go into the city and to meet Saul, the one who had persecuted but now he's been converted on the road to Damascus. And God tells Ananias, he says, Paul is a, he's a chosen instrument for God to carry his name to the Gentiles. So that's another use of the word where God chose Paul um, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He was specifically set aside for that purpose. Then we'll come back to the Romans 9 and the Romans 11 references. That's how I want to finish. Those are really fun. If you really want to understand election and then realize how much we don't understand election, Romans 9 to 11 is really a fun read. It just, it's so intricate and mind-blowing. But we'll go over there at least and read some of it. 1 Thessalonians 1, let's go over there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, we're reading verse 4. 
as Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonian believers, um, he's, he's going to address election. And really, we've said it before, but one aspect of election is trying to understand if it's that God chose us and that's why we chose him, or we chose God and that's why he chose us in eternity past. Trying to understand that, part of it's just perspective. If we're looking at it from our perspective, well, we live out of our own free will. So that's naturally the side from which we're going to view salvation, is that I chose to believe in Christ. But then if you think of it from God's side of view, well, um, Christ said back in John chapter 6, we should have looked at that text while we were there, John six forty four, um, no one comes to the Son except the Father draws him. Uh, that We didn't look at it because it doesn't use the word election, but it's the same concept. No one can come to the Son unless the Father is drawing him. So then you've got to work through that side of it, and we will um, later at the salvific moment. But, okay, back to 1 Thessalonians 1. Oh, I was saying which perspective you're looking at it from. Man's perspective, we see our free will. From God's perspective, we see God's sovereign choice. But then 1 Thessalonians 1, um, starting verse 3, well, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance or conviction, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So essentially what Paul does there, he says, brothers, beloved, elect, he says, well, how do we know you're elect? How do we know you're elect or chosen? And then he defines it in verse 5. For, or because, our gospel came not unto you in word only. In other words, you didn't just say, yeah, I believe that. But it came to you also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance or conviction. So there was external, tangible evidence of the inner workings of the gospel within the Thessalonians' hearts. It changed them. There was powerful demonstration. There's the Holy Spirit. And there is conviction, assurance, the truth. I'm thinking about the power of choosing and the power of choice. And um, some time ago, a long time ago, I guess, I read about a conflict between a, a wife, a husband, and a son. And the son was trying to pit the father, or the father against the mother. And it finally came down to it that the father looked at him and he said, Son, I love you. But I didn't choose you. I chose my wife. And there's a priority. There's a power there. It was a choice. It was, it was not just a genetic or a biological function, but it was a real choice. He made that choice. And therefore, his loyalty or his priority goes to the wife instead of to the son. Now, I'm thinking about the power of making... There's a lot of power in making choices like this. Mm-hmm. And that, this verse kind of appeals to that idea. Yeah. Power in the choice. It's good. 
I think it's interesting here in First Thessalonians one, just the evidence Paul gives for election isn't it's not a well we're better than everyone else because we're part of God's elect. It's actually he just says, Well, how do we know if someone's elect? How do we know if these Thessalonians are elect? Well, God gives evidence in their lives. The same way that we would say, well, how do we know if someone truly trusts Christ? It's by the evidence of their lives. Both sides of it are illustrated. Same thing, let's just go over 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, he's talking about, this is a a common text. Remember the add to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, temperance, temperance, patience. He works through that. And then verse 8, he says, 2 Peter 1, 8, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten he was purged from his old sins. In other words, a genuine Christian who ceases to grow may become so nearsighted they forget that they were previously saved. They didn't lose their salvation, but now they're lacking assurance. But then, verse 10, he says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make your calling and election sure, or be diligent to confirm your calling and election. So is it possible to have someone that is elect but they're not showing fruit in their life. Because, like, maybe that's God's plan, that they're not, like, going through their... um, I don't know. I think about, like, I was saved really early on, Mm -hmm. and I, you know, then came back to my faith when I was, you know, a young adult. And I don't think I probably showed a lot of fruit early on. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, like... Once I understood, does that make sense? Like maybe yeah. there are people that don't necessarily show a lot of fruit right now, but they are saved. Mm-hmm. They're just not in, you know, like God has a plan for them growing. Maybe not right away. Yep. Is that, I mean, that's. Absolutely. I think that's exactly what this text is saying. Right. Like, okay, you're a genuine believer. Peter says, I'm writing to people who are saved. And then he says, but if you stop adding to your faith, if you don't grow, you might even forget that you're saved. But he doesn't say you're not saved. He says you forget you were. So that's why he says then the urge is make sure you're calling an election or confirm it. Show outward fruit of the election. But I think absolutely. Yeah. So even showing fruit is a choice in a way. Mm -hmm. I think some people like just your level of spiritual maturity is kind of so it dictates a lot of the fruit that is formed, right? Because if you, yeah, you can be on, like, fully bought in like that, like, to the salvation message and understand it and have the understanding of the gospel, but not really realizing, like, what your calling is, like, what you're led to. Some people are led to, like, full-time ministry, but they don't realize that until they're in their 30s or 40s or later when they retire, right? And I think it's just that, like, to be fully effective, I think you have to reach a certain amount of maturity for some people. But it's like, yeah, always show at your level, like what, what level can the new believer show is you can always share the gospel, right? Because you know, you, you should know it can save you. Yeah. Right? So that's kind of, I think, but no, I think some people just like to really realize, like in, like that verse says, like 
don't know, it's kind of like, what is your calling? Like, you have to, you have to really define your calling first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Same kind of thing. It reminds me of the end of Philippians, or I guess it's the middle of Philippians 2, after we talk through the humility of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. He says, <clears throat> Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So there's, in salvation as well as in sanctification, there's this dual action of God is working in you to want to do what's right, but then you have a responsibility to work out your own salvation. Not work for, you're already saved, but working it out, growing. <laughs> what do I know? Sorry? Um, Pierfoot has a called the Reluctant Most Reluctant Convert. It's a life story from C.S. Lewis. And it was kind of educated on his book, Guided by Joy, autobiography. And so we were watching it, and it was talking about, um, you know, he got on the train, and when he got on the train, he was an atheist, but all this stuff that was going through his head, he got off the train, and he was a theist. Just showing the, you know, his growth in yeah. becoming a 
the most reluctant convert. Okay, cool. <laughs> Did you like what you saw of it, Beth? <laughs> don't remember <laughs> so this next word we won't look any of these ones up um, iretamai it's a, just another word that has the idea of to choose um, Second Thessalonians 2 is the use where God chose the Thessalonians um, actually I think we'll look at that one in a minute for something else but then we've got one final word tasso so there's several um Several passages there. We're going to look up Acts thirteen forty eight in a moment to discuss something. But then this word is used for things appointed. So like Acts twenty eight twenty three, uh, Paul calls the local Jewish leaders together in Rome to speak with them, and they appointed a day to meet with them. So the day's appointment. They set an appointment. So that's how this word is used to make an appointment or to ordain something. Um, so let's do that. Let's go to Acts 13.48. Acts 13.48. And this is at the end. This is, I think, this is on page three. The last discussion point will kind of go out of order. This is the discussion of how is God's election compatible with human free will. So Acts chapter 13, the context here, um, Paul, he preaches just an outstanding sermon in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, um, so they invite him back. The next Sabbath, Paul comes and he's going to preach again, and almost the entire city gathers. But now that there's such a huge crowd, the Jews are jealous, so they oppose what Paul is teaching. So he says, well, Acts 13, uh, verse 47, he's, end of 46, he says, but we turn to the Gentiles. For so has the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light of the Gentiles that you should be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. So the Jews reject, so he turns to the Gentiles. Verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So we've got as many as were ordained to eternal life, assuming God did that ordaining, as many as were ordained believed. So the discussion of how is God's election compatible with human free will? How did God choose us and yet we still get to freely make the choice? I don't know that we can understand it. Paul, uh, well, Luke, writing here in the book of Acts, he's perfectly okay with the, the seeming tension there that as many as were appointed did believe. So God appointed them and yet then they freely chose. However many that was. I was thinking of a, a different word to slip in there that maybe clarifies. Maybe for me, I'm, just, I'm so fuzzy on it. to use the word prophesy. In other words, if I'm God and I know the future, I can prophesy about the future because I know the future. Mm -hmm. So if I were not looking at a word like appointed as a deliberate act, and I still allowed for free will, I would know what the person was going to choose. I would prophesy, be able to God, or be able to prophesy about that. Mm -hmm. And that softens it just a little bit and gives yep. more freedom to free will. Yeah. And that's kind of the question. You're still there to make your choice. Right. Did God just foretell the future, this is what's going to happen, but not choose it? 
Or did God determine or decree or ordain the future? And so that's the conversation and the tension that we work with, is how much of it did God actually choose himself? Salvation was the choice of his. He gave it to yep. Salvation was delivery. Yeah. What if it's good. promised in lieu of predestined? God makes promises about here's what's going to happen. And those things yeah. happen. Yeah. We could put, the only problem is that's not the word used in scripture. So if we start substituting words, we're getting different ideas. I don't know. I'm not sure if ordained what the Greek word is originally. I'm not asking you to look it up. But God promised, he ordained. Don't we make some promises when we ordain ministers? Our ministers make these promises. They're ordained, that's all it is. They are chosen and selected and elected, and they make promises to and from each other. Right. Okay, or to and from the church or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay, so ordination is nothing more than a promise. Mm -hmm. In that way, in that sense of the term. Yeah. Yep, yep. But... Maybe we should have worked through the rest of those word studies um, so that you could see it. But it's used as a, so like Philippians one twenty two, that word, it's the, the word tasso. But he says, Philippians one twenty two, he talks about, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I know not what I will choose. Same word as later then translated appointed to eternal life in Acts 13. Tim? So what about Hebrews Mm-hmm. Yeah. Different word, it's apakemai. But similar idea. Different word, it similar meaning, but it's different. That is such a good theological statement. Yeah. Sorry, so profound. Oh man. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in a war, people are going to be lost, and he knows that. But he's like ordaining that then it happens. Yeah. I don't know. That's an illustration. So like a general who somehow knows the future that he'll win a war, so then he chooses to engage in the war and mm-hmm. ordains it, even though there's going to be lives lost, mm-hmm. etc. But he's still ordaining that it occurs. 
That's what I'm trying to get to here. So go to Romans 9. Go to Romans 9. So I give you the ends of election, kind of the goal. There's various goals. Election for salvation. We've looked at that in several places. But then we've talked about how there's a distinction. The election of Israel as God's special people did not, um, did not mean that every one of them was saved. Christ is the elect of God, and then there's elect angels that we're not even going to talk about. But going over to Romans chapter 9, if you look down to verse 10, what Paul is doing, he's talking about how God has set aside his people Israel for a time, grafted in Gentiles. So verse 10, um, Paul is giving the illustration. Well, look back at verse 6. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. So he's making the point, not everyone who is national Israel ethnically is going to be saved, and they're part of the actual people of God. So then verse 10, Not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That's some pretty strong language. Go down to ver, uh, cha- chapter 11. So verses 1 through 8, Paul's asking a question. He says, has God cast off his people? That's verse 1. He says, God forbid, for I'm also an Israelite. God has not cast away, verse 2, his people who he foreknew. Know you not the scripture, say what it says of Elias, how he makes intercession to God against Israel. And he talks through that. Um... He said, because Elijah claims, he says, I'm the only one left. But God says, no, there's still a remnant of people who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. So verse 5, even so then at this present time also, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So he talks about Israel's election But then, drop down to verse 33. And this is where we'll we'll close it out. Is the purpose of election isn't to produce corals. It's something hard to understand, and we can debate it. But ultimately, the purpose of God's election is to develop in us adoration. And that's what it does for Paul. Romans 9 through 11 are Scripture's premier text speaking of God's election. And Paul gets to the end of it, verse 33. He says, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? 
Or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So Paul says, wow, look at this massive doctrine of election, how God has chosen. And then he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways are past finding out. And then that's the basis of Paul's practical exhortation to the Romans in chapters 12 through 16. The very next verse, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. On the basis of God's mercies, namely in election and then previously in, in salvation, in the, re, the beginning of Romans, he says that's the foundation on which we live our lives for Christ. So it is practical. But we'll close it down there. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we're just grateful. We can't understand election fully. We have not known your mind. Your ways are past our finding out. But we adore you for your infinite wisdom. Somehow that you would choose us to be saved and yet you, you gave us the choice. Thank you for your spirit's work to draw us to your son. Thank you for giving us a free will that we could choose to believe on Jesus Christ. And thank you for providing your own son to pay the price. Lord, may this lead us to, to, to adore you in a deeper, more profound way that somehow you chose us from eternity past and appointed us to eternal life and that then we believed. So we give this over to you. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.